Greg always does. Just the. Are you sitting too close? Or? <laughs> yeah. huh? I over here well, good morning. Good morning. This is a little different for me. I'm usually hiding behind a guitar when I'm up here. Um, <clears throat> I remember the first time that I, I encountered or heard Blessed Be Your Name. Preston will relate with me on this. We were in Mexico at YWAM on <clears throat> a missions trip, and it was a brand new song. And everybody was, I had never heard it. We had never heard it. And um, <clears throat> the worship leader there just sang it at every worship time we had. But he sang it so slow. <laughs> and Preston and I were like, this is like swimming through mayonnaise. <laughs> so, <clears throat> so sometimes when I hear that song, I get a, a hankering for a good tomato sandwich. <laughs> but it's really, uh, it's, it's funny because I, I was like, I, I just don't want anything, I don't like that song because it was sung so slow and so methodically and it was just so tr- tedious to get through that song and now it's one of my favorites, you know, I play it all the time. Um, I remember y'all brought it back from Mexico. Yeah. yeah. And now I feel old because that's got to be what, 15 years old. Uh, but yeah, well, it just come out, right? He wrote it in there um, after the, the events of 9-11, so. Um, <clears throat> and it's interesting that we, we pray about um, those who feel lost now, because we're going to talk about Peter today. And um, So I'll ask you a question first. Has, has everybody had breakfast here this morning? Mm-hmm. What did you guys have? Sort of? I make you breakfast every morning. Spin it raw eggs. Anybody have fish? Um. Sometimes I'm a little slow to process things a bit. I'm still kind of on this a bit of an Easter kick. <laughs> um, so we had, you know, you have Easter, and then when we had uh, Church of Camille's house, we talked about the road to Emmaus and Jesus appearing there. And we're still within the 40 days, right? So we're, we're good here. Uh, <laughs> so the next appearance after the resurrection is in John 21, which is where I'm going to go today. And... I've got stuff down here. Um, it made sense at one point, and hopefully it'll come out that way. Um, <clears throat> I really like uh, the Gospel of John. You know, it's, it's a whirlwind of action, and he doesn't he doesn't fluff things up much. He goes right to the the meat of everything. It's a because it opens with the Word becoming flesh and dwelling among us, right? Tabernacling among us. Um, <clears throat> a couple chapters later, he's uh, doing a miracle at a wedding feast, mm-hmm. and then he changes a woman's life at the well. 
few chapters after that, he's raising the dead, healing the sick, speaking truths, and inviting people into this incredible relationship to God. But then he gets down to the heart of why he's here, and he gathers his followers and tells them he knows what his life is truly about. He goes off and he prays in the garden. He's arrested, beaten, deprived of justice, and crucified. So he's died, he's buried in the tomb, and on the third day the tomb is empty. He's alive, risen from the dead. So he appears to his stunned followers, even the doubters, and they touch him and see that he's real. And that's the perfect ending of a great story, right? Chapter 20 ends, and right here, the, the title to that section is The Purpose of This Book. And so, along comes chapter 21, which we're going to look at today. And a lot of critical scholars uh, believe it doesn't belong in the canon of Scripture, or that they can't understand why John would have taken the trouble to add this lengthy account of another manifestation of the risen Christ when the climax of the book was reached in the previous chapter. <clears throat> but anyone who does any any reading of literature and history and fiction knows that it's customary to provide an epilogue at times and tie up all the loose ends. It's like having your, your favorite TV show and it's, you've had this great episode or something and then you know there's usually this overarching theme throughout a season or something. And you get to the end and like, you know, that was really good. And then there's this little other scene that like is really good. Ties you and you're like, oh, now I gotta go watch the next episode. <laughs> if you're Netflix, you can binge watch it, but <clears throat> So that's what's happening here. You know, you've had this great story that ends in chapter twenty, then the, the your heart is full and the, the credits start rolling and you're about to get out of the theater and everything, and then you hear the waves bristling on the beach. It fades back up. And you're like, oh, there's more. You, know, you get that awkwardness where everybody's kind of like hanging out by the corner of the theater. Like, well, we didn't know there was going to be another scene. <laughs> so what John is doing here is he's tying up the loose ends on the status of Peter. He so dismissed and betrayed Jesus in, in his public denial. And I can only imagine if you, if you read through this book and, and you related to Peter and then it got to the end and, and that was it. You think, well, what happened to that guy? Because that kind of... I kind of feel for him, you know. I related to him, and I, I what happened to him? Is he just lost? <clears throat> so John wants to tie those loose ends, and it's a very, very good that he does. Okay, so we know that Peter had rushed to the tomb after Mary Magdalene brought the word that his uh, Jesus' body was missing, and we know that he was present in the upper room when Jesus appeared to the disciples twice. But we don't know about their relationship until this point. And we know that Jesus looked at Peter in the courtyard right after he had uttered his third denial. And their eyes met. And can you imagine any deeper level of, of, of shame a human being could experience at that point? How Peter must have felt when he saw Christ looking at him. Or how he would cringe every time a rooster crowed from then on. <clears throat> so John understood that and decided not to leave those loose ends hanging. And so he wrote about the restoration of Peter in the second uh, part of the, this chapter. So let's read chapter 21. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. And he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, 
Nathanael of Cana and Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. And they said to him, we will go with you. And they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? They answered him, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, it is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and he threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from land, but about a hundred yards off. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place and fish laid out on it and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was going to glorify God. And after saying this to him, he said, follow me. Peter turned and saw the disciple who Jesus loved following them, the one who was also leaned back against him during the supper, and had said, Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. So the saying spread abroad among the brothers, this disciple was not to die, yet Jesus did not say to him that he was not to die. But if this is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things, and we know that his testimony is true. Now, there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. <clears throat> so John begins with these words, and after these things, Jesus showed himself again to the disciples in the Sea of Tiberias. So John is immediately telling us that he's, he's, he's reporting a showing, an unveiling, a manifestation, and a visible revelation of Jesus resurrected. This one takes place not in Jerusalem, but the site of his first two appearances to the disciples in Galilee, on the shore of the Sea of Tiberias or the Sea of Galilee. And Jesus had sent word by the women who first went to the tomb that the disciples would see him in Galilee, and a number of, them, of the disciples made that trek up north. And John tells us who some of them were. He says, in this way, he showed himself. Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, 
the sons of Zebedee and two others of his disciples were together. I think it's important to look at who who we have here together. I mean, you've got seven of the eleven disciples here. Three of them are named, and we know that the sons of Zebedee were James and John. Two other disciples are not identified. How'd you like to be those guys? <laughs> um, <clears throat> But we have to look at how different they all are. You've got a superstitious, quick-to-believe Nathaniel. Remember Nathaniel? He was the one that Jesus immediately claimed Jesus as king because Jesus said to him, he saw him under the fig tree. That's all he had to say to Nathaniel. I don't know what he was doing under the fig tree. Only Nathaniel and Jesus does. But whatever it was, was enough for Nathaniel to say, you're the king! He's very superstitious. And then you've got skeptical, i got to see the wounds, Thomas, right? These two people usually don't get along. <laughs> the superstitious and the substitious, as Tim Keller would say. You're, you're not going to... You're going to butt heads with these people, you know. <clears throat> it's also interesting that Thomas would, would want to see the scars. You would think that a resurrected body would not have scars. So for Jesus to manifest himself in that way shows that he knows Thomas. So you also got John, who is rational and thinks before he acts, and Peter, who is impulsive and more uh, ready aim shoot, ready shoot aim. Sorry, <laughs> <clears throat> those two people don't get along well either. I'm, I'm I'm definitely a John. I think things through, and people who just jump to conclusions and go for it just are crazy, right? <laughs> <clears throat> So talk about having a bunch of people you don't get along with or something to not have in common with. And most of the guys would hate to be around each other, but all of them are about to get in a boat together. (laughs) Right? A small boat. (laughs) Now, I've been on a boat with six other people in a lake. A lot. (laughs) You don't have a lot of space and room to move. I don't know how big... How big uh, Peter's boat is, you know, it's a fishing boat. All I can come up with is, you know, these fishing boats. <laughs> yeah, there we go. <clears throat> so we're told, Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. And they said to him, we're going with you also. And they went out immediately and got in the boat. And that night they caught nothing. So some... Scholars like to think that Simon Peter had given up and he's just returning to what he knew best, what he was used to doing. He was a fisherman. This was easy. This was what he got and what he was doing three years before, before Jesus called him. R.C. Sproul thinks about it a little bit differently, and I tend to agree with this. He says the disciples were waiting for Jesus to appear, so we should not conclude that Peter abandoned his mission in order to return to the profession of fishing. Neither was Peter wasting his time. Fishing was his business, his profession, and he had been called from his nets to follow Jesus to be a fisher of men. But now, as he waited on the next summons of Christ, he said, I'm going to go fishing. And the other said, we'll go along. Part of me thinks that the others kind of went along because, you know, they wanted to keep an eye on Peter. <laughs> He's been through a lot recently. Um, <clears throat> but the fishing trip was not successful. They fished all night but caught nothing. This part of the text is reminiscent of a passage in Luke 5, which tells us that Jesus borrowed Peter's boat as a teaching platform one day. 
It suggested that he row out deeper into the water and let down his nets. And Peter at that point complained that he had fished all night with no success. But nevertheless, he obeyed Jesus and he, so, he, he caught a great number of fish. And there are differences between these two events. You have the same disciples in the same sea and an unsuccessful night of fishing and Jesus' help. But they're two very different events. And John continues, But when morning now had come, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Now, I think that if you are a resurrected body, you get a superpower of being able to disguise yourself because, I mean, that's pretty cool. (laughs) This is the third time he's done it here. He appeared to to Mary at the tomb. He thought he was the gardener. He comes alongside the disciples walking to Emmaus. They don't know him. He walks seven miles with them, have dinner with them, and as he breaks the bread, it's like, ah, it's Jesus. And then he disappears. They run seven miles back to Jerusalem, and um, <clears throat> Jesus kind of beats them there, <laughs> walks through the wall, shows himself to Thomas, and now he's on the this, this shore, and he's addressing them, and they don't know who he is. This is a pretty cool superpower, right? <laughs> and he said to them, children, have you any food? They answered him, no. And he said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you'll find some. So they cast, and they were not able to draw it in because of the multitude of fish. So he appears on the shore, and he's about 100 yards away, but they don't recognize him. And he calls out to them, addressing them as children. And the translation here, it seems a little demeaning here to call them children. But the translation here would be more of a slang term of them calling them, hey guys, or kids, or lads. They're millennials. He'd probably say, bro, you got any fish? (laughs) (laughs) But they, they didn't recognize his voice. And when they told him he had no food, he suggested they drop their net on the other side of the boat. So this has got to be the, like, the worst thing you can say to a fisherman, right? <laughs> <laughs> it's knowing full well they've been fishing all night, they haven't caught anything, and say, hey, what, how's that working out for you? And then gives them some fishing advice and say, why don't you try it on the other side? Like, can you see Peter thinking, oh yeah, that's out of the boat. Why didn't I think about that? <laughs> don't think we tried that? And then he would just throw it in despite. But consider, in this in this instance in Luke 5, they complained about it. They've been out all night fishing, and Jesus kind of um, Jesus says, you know, throw the net on the, on the other side. And they're like, well, we've done that. We've been out here all night. You've done it. But in this instance, it doesn't say that there was any complaining. They didn't know it was Jesus on the shore, and they were professional fishermen, and they had had their net all the night, yet they accepted the suggestion of this unknown person, and the result is this huge catch of fish that they can't pull into the net. So why is Jesus doing this? Why is he asking the questions like this when he knows the answer? It's because he wants you to be honest with yourself. He wants you to start being honest with yourself and quit lying to yourself and admit that you've done this all night and you've fished all night and you're not able to haul it in. But when I am here for you, you can haul it in. So something about this incident tipped John off. John's the rational thinker, right? He's crunching the data. He's like, hey, I've been here before. This this is this is this sounds familiar for me. <clears throat> so he says, therefore, that disciple whom Jesus loved. Now, this is the thing about John. He refers to himself, and this is the disciple that Jesus loved. That's a whole other thing that I, I don't have. <laughs> <clears throat> so he said to the so he says to Peter, "It is the Lord." When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment for he had removed it, and he plunged himself into the sea. So do you see something strange here? 
I'd be taking the garnet off. And just going, His actions are, are very strange. When people spontaneously decide to go swimming, what do they do? You take your clothes off. They don't put them on. Back in August, we went to a, a, a swimming hole with the Cascades and up in the mountains of North Carolina. You're driving around. There's cars parked on the road. You walk through the woods, and there's these beautiful Cascades. And people are just swimming. I didn't see anybody going back and saying, this is so cool. I'm going to go back to the car and get my coat. <laughs> <clears throat> so the Greek text indicates that, he, that Peter was naked or, or close to it. He was stripped for work. So now you got seven guys stripped for work on a boat together, right? He may have had his outer cloak draped on him, but when he decided to go to Jesus, he covered himself, not to keep out the cold. Adam and Eve had sinned. They tried to cover their neckiness because of their shame under the gaze of the Holy Spirit. But Peter was going to face the Savior he denied and betrayed, and he covered himself and plunged into the water. The fact that Peter wanted to go to Jesus marks a major difference between this incident and the other incident of the fish recorded in Luke 5. On that occasion, when Jesus told Peter where the fish were, and his partners caught so many fish, they filled two boats to the, full, the point of sinking. When he saw the great catch of fish, he had a very strange response. He looked at Jesus, and what did he say? Depart. He said, depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. This is a universal response of people when they recognize the character of Jesus. It's a universal response to the creature who beholds the unveiled glory of God of the Holy God. Our basic nature is to put as much distance between us and Christ as we can. And when Peter realized that the one with whom he was dealing, he was overwhelmed with the sense of guilt and he wanted relief from that more than anything else. And all he wanted was space between Jesus and himself. So he said, Jesus, please leave. I can't stand it. And that's how Peter reacted to early on in the ministry of Jesus. But that's not what he did here. When he gave this second great catch of fish... This time, even though he had so much more to be ashamed of, so much more to be embarrassed about, instead of trying to put distance between himself and his Savior, he dove into the water and swam as quickly as he could, and he couldn't wait to get to shore where Jesus stood. <clears throat> so Peter swims to shore, and I, I don't know anybody that can really outswim a boat. Right? Carla, could you... Probably not. How fast would it take you to swim two cubits? I don't know. How long a cubit 100, 100 yards. Oh, uh, a minute. 100 yards? So I can imagine that Peter's in the water. He's swimming. He's waiting. I don't know how deep the water is. And the other guys are probably in the boat. Saying, yeah, Peter, you got it. <laughs> you can do it. <laughs> You you want to ride? Not with a coat. <laughs> yeah, in a coat. So John tells us the other disciples came in the little boat, for they were not far from land, but about two hundred cubits, hundred yards or so, dragging the net of fish. Now they had a big drag, so maybe they were a little bit slower. Here. Then, as soon as they had come to land, they saw a fire of coals there, and the fish laid out it and bread. My grandfather would be proud of this because there was bread. He was a he was a manager of a Marita Bakery in Rocky Mountain. Always had to have bread on the table, you know, mm-hmm. even if it was just some Marita White loaf of bread. You know, <clears throat> Jesus had fish and bread. 
So the other disciples followed in this little boat, dragging the net of fish, and when they reached the shore, they saw a fire of coals. Now, it's an odd detail that he mentions it's a fire of coals. Lots of fires are mentioned in the Bible. Twice is it specifically mentioned that they're fires of coal. Here and in John 18, 18, where Peter was warming himself by a fire at the denial. But instead of Serving girls and soldiers tend in the fire this time. It's Jesus. And Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish which you have just caught. Simon Peter went up and dragged the net to land, full of large fish, 153. And although there were so many, the net was not broken. So hearing Jesus' command, Peter went out and dragged the net in the land by himself. His attitude seems to be, Whatever you say, Lord, I'm bringing in the net. And this characterizes Peter. <clears throat> He's swimming. He's hauling the net in by himself. I got it. Look at me. I'm swimming. I'm hauling the fish. Meanwhile, Jesus is standing there beside the breakfast. He's already prepared for Peter. Peter, does he need Peter's fish? <laughs> no. <laughs> where, did Pete, where did Jesus get the fish? He's Jesus. He can just make fish if he needs to. <clears throat> the contrast in this chapter is between Peter's feeling like he needs to prove himself and Jesus' invitation to him. For Peter, his relationship to God has always been about working and proving himself and being the best. But Jesus is not asking Peter to prove anything. He doesn't even need Peter's fish. Jesus came to Peter. He prepared a table for Peter. And Peter doesn't get that. He's still swimming and hauling fish. Saying, Jesus, look at me. Look at me. John provides another odd detail here. There are 153 fish in the net. Archie Sproul says he's not sure why Jesus tells us this, and is sure it's less important, but many of the giants of church history have given bizarre representations and interpretations of this fact. Jerome had pointed out that the naturalist of the era argued that there were 153 known species of fish at the time, so he believed that John was saying that their work as fishers of men, the disciples that would be catching people from every tribe, nation, and tongue. It's a nice theory. But unfortunately, the naturalist Jerome had cited had actually enumerated 157 varieties of fish. <laughs> it's not 153. Augustine points out that 153 is the sum of all the numbers from 1 to 17. Go, Augustine. <laughs> now, 17 is the total of 10 for the Ten Commandments and 7 for the sevenfold Spirit of God in Revelation. That makes sense, right? <laughs> no. Others hold that the disciples just wanted to divide the fish, that they had to count them up to make a fair distribution. But this number is invisible by seven. Another view is that the disciples counted the fish simply because it was a record-breaking catch and they wanted to see how many they had landed. In the end, we don't really know if there's any significance to the number or not. But Tim Keller says that this, this 153 is not symbolic, nor is it realism, for the style of of narrative had not been, yet been invented. You're not going to write that there's 153 fish in this type of, of writing to try to make a, a point. It's not a fable or, or a legend that you're trying to, to build up here. You're not going to put that level of detail into it. So therefore, this is a fact, an eyewitness account. And I was just noticing when I was reading it earlier that this is, this is in quotes in, in the Bible. I missed that when I was, I was reading. <clears throat> so this is an eyewitness account. It happened. They have no symbolic value and nothing to do with the plot. They're just there because this guy is recalling this event from memory, which shows you that these are not legends that grew up over time. 
They give every indication to be in what they claim to be an eyewitness account. You don't write legends with random details like that. You can also look at, at Peter putting on his cloak to jump in the water. You're not going to put that in there unless it's true. There's no reason for that to be in there except this was proving that this is an actual event. This is an eyewitness account. <clears throat> and I'm sure that if this is the eyewitness account by, of John who is standing next to him and says it's the Lord and he puts his coat on, he's probably thinking, what are you doing? Putting your coat on about to jump in the water. Mm-hmm. So we continue on. And Jesus says to them, come and eat breakfast. Yet none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? Knowing that it was the Lord. Jesus then came and took the bread and gave it to them, and likewise the fish. This is a poignant moment. He's inviting his disciples to have breakfast the night of, of their, after the night of their labor, or laborless night. And what Jesus didn't say to Peter here is just as important as to what he did. Jesus didn't commend Peter on a fantastic swim from the boat. He didn't chew him out for denying him in the high priest's courtyard, and he didn't rebuke Peter in any way for failing him. He simply invited Peter to breakfast. There's no lecture, there's no condemnation, no rebuke. There's just acceptance and provision and a kind of familiarity that only Jesus can provide. You hungry? Did you eat yet? That is mercy and grace on display. It's the gospel in a nutshell. It's the gospel on repeat. Whether it's the first time, the second time, the 10,000th time, Jesus serves us in our emptiness. He feeds us after we've let ourselves and him down. He welcomes us near and say, hey, you look tired, scared, a little bit of or maybe beat down. Would you like some breakfast? And so then he himself gave them bread and fish to eat. This was the same Jesus who had washed their feet in the upper room had taken their place on the cross and had assumed their sin in his person. Yet Jesus still served them, providing their daily bread here on the seashore and provides for you and me and his disciples in the present day. His mercies are new every day. <clears throat> but the story isn't over yet. In this final passage, the, the focus is squarely on Jesus and Peter. And we read here this final recorded exchange between this fisherman and his Lord. And it's not without significance the way that this interrogation proceeds in the manner that it does. Jesus pulls Peter aside and asks him some questions. Actually, Jesus only asked him one question. He asked it three times. Do you love me? So John writes, when they had eaten breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Now, a couple of the words in this question deserve comment. The first is love. And so Sproul says that <clears throat> there are three words in Greek that can be translated into the English language as love. The first is eros, which refers to sexual love. And the second is phileo. Um, my Greek is bad. Which generally refers to a brotherly love. That's where you get the Philadelphia brotherly love. city of brotherly love. And the third is agape, which is the highest expression of love mentioned in the New Testament. It's a spiritual love that's rooted and grounded in the power of God in this question. And Jesus used the verb form of agape, and he was asking whether Peter had the highest form of love for him. <clears throat> now, the second word in here that you look at is the word these. It's sort of ambiguous. Who or what are these? 
Scholars think that one possibility is he's asking, do you love me more than these things that have been such an integral part of your life, your nets, your boat, your fishing equipment? Do I take precedence over your career, over your vocation? A second option is that he's asking, do you love me more than you love your fellow disciples? And a third possible meaning is what Jesus is asking, do you love me more than these other men love me? We don't know conclusively what was meant here. Sproul says his educated guess is he's asking Peter, do you love me more than the rest of the disciples love me? And he thinks that that's why Jesus taught, to whom little is forgiven, the same loves little. Peter understood all this, and he had betrayed Christ more deeply than the rest. And therefore, being forgiven and restored and invited back, not only into the fellowship of Christ, but into the ministry of Christ, rather than being dismissed from the whole thing, he saw the grace of God more fully than the rest of them. John concludes, John continues and he says, Peter said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. There's irony in his answer because when Jesus predicted Peter's denial, Peter replied, even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. Essentially, he was saying, no, Lord, you you don't know what I'm going to do. You don't know where my heart is and I would never deny you. But here in the Sea of Galilee, it appears that Peter has learned not to dispute Jesus' knowledge and what's going on inside of him. The commenters notice that when Peter says, yes, Lord, you know that I love you, he's using the Greek phileo. And Jesus used the Greek agape in his question. Peter responded with the brotherly love. So many commenters believe that the different words indicate that he was challenging Peter to a higher level of love than Peter had been able to demonstrate to this point. But at the same time, commenters will point out that John used both of these words kind of interchangeably. So we don't really know if that's, that's a true thing, that Jesus is trying to call him to a higher love or not. John just uses a stylistic preference. It's especially true when he says, I love you, but not to the degree you want me. Um, He doesn't think that Peter was saying, I love you, but not to the degree you want me to love you. Because after all, Peter said, you know the answer to this question. So then he says to him, feed my lambs. If Peter was going to be restored, he was going to be a pastor. He was going to shepherd the flock of Christ. And loving Jesus meant loving and feeding Christ's lambs. So he said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. And he said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he had said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. And some make much about the variation of the the terms here. Feed my lambs, tend my sheep, feed my sheep. Some believe that the lambs are the new converts, or the sheep are the old ones, and there's a difference between tending and feeding. Sproul says he doesn't think that those words have so much meaning, but he was simply saying, if you want to be a pastor and a shepherd, then feed my sheep. Don't starve them and make them your highest concern. You see, Peter was always trying to raise himself above all the other disciples, and he was trying to be first. He always wanted to position himself as Jesus' go-to guy. So when Jesus was asking him, when it comes to loving me, are you first? Jesus didn't back down. He said, Lord, you know I do. And Jesus did. He knew Peter truly did love him, and he knew that he was a work in progress. And for all of his mistakes, love was still there. Jesus knew that under Peter's bold and brash proclamations, Peter really did love him wholeheartedly, mistakes and all. So why did he ask the question three times? The more times he asked the question, the more frustrated Peter became. 
But Jesus didn't want Peter to be confident in Peter and the answers he gave. He wanted Peter to be confident in God and God's presence within Peter. The second and third time he asked him the question, he told him the same thing, to feed his sheep. In other words, Jesus was telling Peter to build his church. He was telling Peter that he wasn't disqualified just because he blew it so bad. Some people would say, well, this is kind of like you know, twisting the knife here, Jesus. You're, you're doing it. And Tim Keller said, yeah, but it's the knife of a surgeon. You're getting to that, that point and saying, I'm, this is gone. I'm cutting this out. <clears throat> so Peter, or Jesus has, has, has set the scene for Peter. He has a, a charcoal fire to which he's, he's sitting by. And he's asked him three times, do you love me? It doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out why he asked him this question three times. Peter had denied him three times, so in his restoration, Jesus required Peter to profess his faith in triplicate too. And then Jesus changed direction and said, Most assuredly, I say to you, when you were younger and girded yourself and walked where you wish, when you were old, you will stretch out your hands and another will gird you and carry you where you do not wish. And he spoke, signifying the death that he would glorify God. And when he had spoken this to him, he said, Follow me. So this conversation takes about 30 years before Peter met his death at Nero in Rome. Tradition says that Peter was crucified. And John says these cryptic words because of here, you will stretch out your hands and another will gird you. Or Jesus' prophetic forecast on how Peter's life would end. Tradition also says that Peter was crucified upside down. He couldn't bear to be crucified in the same manner that his Lord and Savior was. That had to be a strange final request. <laughs> Do you think? <clears throat> but nonetheless, Jesus said to Peter, follow me. And despite persecution for 30 years, Jesus did just that. And he followed the sheep and he followed Jesus and, and fed the Lord's sheep. Now, sheep aren't very loving animals or clean they're not the fluffy little things you see on the Hallmark cards, as Tim Keller would say. <clears throat> if you feed a cat, it'll come nuzzle up next to you. You know, a dog is very appreciative of you feeding it. Sheep aren't that way. So then Jesus writes, Peter, turning around, saw the disciple who Jesus had loved following, who also had leaned on his breast at the supper and said, Lord, who is the one who betrays you? And Peter, seeing him, said to Jesus, But Lord, what about this man? You can see, oh, great, here we go again. <laughs> thought we were getting somewhere. But Jesus doesn't roll his eyes. He doesn't... He disciplines him. But So this is the disciple whom Jesus loved. John himself, author of this book, apparently heard the exchange between Jesus and Peter. <clears throat> he seems to have been nearby, and Peter, seeing him, said, well, Lord, what about him? not clear about what Peter was asking, but we'll assume that he asked, you've told me what's going to become of me. What's going to happen to John? History tells us that John was the only one of the, the apostles who was not mar- martyred for the faith. Though he did not escape persecution and he was exiled to the island of Patmos. But that's the way we're, we're, we're wired as sinners. We compare, we compare, and we compare. We crave to know how we stack up in comparison to others. 
It's some kind of high that if we can just find someone less affected than we are, we're okay. But how did Jesus reply to Peter? He said, if I will that he remain till I come, what is that to you? You follow me. John Piper recalls a note posted by his resident assistant in his dormitory at Wheaton College. It said, to love is to stop comparing. What is that to you? Follow me. Piper said, those words landed on me with great joy. Jesus will not judge me according to my superiority or inferiority over anybody. No preacher, no church, no ministry. These are not the standard. Jesus has a work for me to do and a different one for you. It is not what he has given anyone else to do. And there's a grace to do it. The question is, will I trust him for that grace to do what he's given me to do? So then John tells us this answer came to be widely misrepresented among the Christians. Then saying that he went out among the brethren that the disciple would not die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he would not die. But if I will that he remain till I come, what is that to you? So in other words, many thought that Jesus had, had said to John that he would still be alive at the second coming. But John denies that that's what Jesus meant. And Jesus was simply telling Peter, what happens to John is none of your concern. I'm not going to give a prophecy about each of you. Just follow me and do what I require of you. It's often the case when Peter is a picture of us when, we're, when he asked the question. If the Lord gives me one thing, I think everybody should get it. Or if I can't get something that I don't get, I say, what's the matter with me? Why don't I get it? The Lord has jobs for each of us to do, and what others do is ultimately none of our business. Each of those must do what God has given him or her to do and fulfill the mandate of Christ. So Jesus goes on, or John goes on and says, The disciple who testifies to these things and wrote these things is we know that his testimony is true. So John needed to attest to his own credibility here. And as a Jew, he knew the sanctity of an oath before God and the severity of the punishment or false witness. So here at the very end of his gospel, John takes an oath and he says that his testimony is true. We know that this testimony is true. And what he has written here is true. And then he adds another little footnote. And there are so many other things that Jesus did, which if they were first were written one by one, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Amen. He said, I'm just giving you the tip of the iceberg. He felt compelled enough to write another chapter after the story was over. And this is just one of many. It's the tip of an iceberg. There could be many Gospels testifying to the person and the work of Christ, and so many to the world could not even contain them. <clears throat> but this is enough for us in this, this moment, right? We all can identify with Peter. We can all f- feel connection there and feel that we've lost everything and that God won't take us back and Jesus won't take us back. And we're going to get fussed out when we do come back. He doesn't say that. He says, come, have breakfast. Fellowship with me. Follow me. Let's pray. Jesus, we love how the Bible promises that God's faithfulness is great and his mercies are new every morning. That means that Jesus' breakfast is served and served and served again and again and again, Lord. 
It doesn't matter whatever our night of nothing was about. There's a new mercy available every morning. Lord, some of us need more at, at brunch time and lunch time and tea time and dinner time as well, Lord. But you're there for us. Jesus, you say that all you say to all of us that nothing will ever divide us from your love, and that includes our failures. When we're put face to face with this gospel of grace, it seems it seems too good to be true. We think there must be some kind of judgment or punishment or condemnation or jury or price to pay. <clears throat> but there isn't, Lord. All this condemnation was already poured out on you, Jesus, and all the penalties were removed by you, our Christ. And we thank you for your great and faithfulness and your great mercy, Lord. Amen. Amen.